Over the past month and a half, I've been trying to suggest to you that it is through gazing into the face of God that our senses are restored. That it is largely the loss of a vision of God, of His majesty and glory, that is responsible for so much of what ails our societies in our time. Over the past two weeks, we've reflected together in particular on the awesome holiness and the amazing self-sacrificing spirit of God. And to try and get at these attributes of God, I've likened the distance between His awesome holiness and grandeur to the distance between heaven and earth in a very vivid way. I've likened the distance between His nature and ours to the gap between the most gigantic and beautiful being ever imaginable and the life of the smallest little insect you can imagine crawling along the ground. Do you remember that illustration and analogy? This suggests something of the colossal distance between God and us. And I think that this is very important to keep in the forefront of our mind because without this awareness of the category-defying transcendence of God, we are all too prone to think too little of him and to think too pridefully of ourselves. And in both ways, something terrible is lost. There is, however, a danger in that particular understanding, which if held alone, uh, presents some challenges for us. And I want to try and correct that this morning, if I may. If all we see is how majestic God is without also seeing how marvelous is the work he is doing in us, it is very easy to grow discouraged in the Christian life. It's a little bit like playing the game of golf, I suppose. I know that when I first went out on the golf course many years ago, I was terrible, but it didn't particularly bother me. When I first started playing this game, I was just thrilled to be out there with my friends. I enjoyed seeing the greenery and having the peace and quiet and being away from work for a little while. I had absolutely no expectation of being any good at this game. And then as I got more and more involved with it, the fact that I was routinely sending dirt clods much further than that little white ball began to bug me in the worst way. I began to get very discouraged. I began to hate being so terribly bad as I was. Every year I would get together with a group of friends that I'd gone to seminary with. And one of these guys is so fantastic at this game that the contrast between his performance and mine became almost unbearable. He, he could almost effortlessly send the ball consistently straight down the course at an unimaginable distance. I am convinced he could hit the ball farther with a putter than I could with the best driver in my bag. And, and I found out last week that he was to have debilitating shoulder surgery. And I, is it bad that I was a little bit happy about this? <laughs> I immediately called him off and asked him if he'd like to play around sometime soon. <laughs> And I think sometimes when I contemplate having to play with him again this year, will I be any better than I was last time? Am I always going to be one of those golfers whose far greater threat is to the worms and the insects on the course than to my enemy? I mean, my friend that I play golf with. 
uh, periodically. Will I always be one of these worm burner golfers? And the answer is probably yes. That's probably the truth. Because without some serious help, without some continuing investment, I am going to remain a worm and not a winner. Now, I tell you this story because I'm convinced that for a lot of us, this is something of what it is like when it comes to the spiritual life, to the life of following Christ. Our performance for most of us did not bother us so very much when we did not care that much about being a Christian. But when we finally got a vision of God, when the grandeur of his personality and and nature began to fill our imaginations more, when we began to notice the way Jesus plays life's course, when we finally crossed over the line from simply being a cultural Christian, somebody born a Christian in a Christian country, when we crossed over that line into conscientious or intentional discipleship, into trying to do and live life as Jesus does, then things began to change for many of us. At first, we became a little bit better. We became more thoughtful about the way that we live, perhaps. We were a bit more checked in the use of our speech. We saw some improvement in the way we were handling ourselves in some formerly temptation-ridden situations. But things did not change enough uh, for us. We found that we continued to struggle with sin. Maybe not in as obvious ways as before we became a conscientious follower of Jesus, but in serious ways just the same. We still found ourselves exaggerating. We still do find ourselves exaggerating or telling little white lies just to make ourselves look better than we are. We boil up with self-righteous judgment and impatience over the sins and flaws and failures of other people and have this amazing way of excusing them in ourselves these same behaviors or other ones. We envy people who have what we do not have. And we struggle to be contented with what we do have, though we are without exception in the top 5% wealthiest human beings that have ever walked the planet Earth. And yet discontentment, restlessness, is so often our lot. We look lustfully upon some guy or girl, reducing them in our imagination from their proper status as a daughter or son of the living God. And we view them instead as a tool for our fantasies or our pleasures. We live anxiously. We live obsessively as if there were no sovereign God whose grace and wisdom is on the move in this world. And this is our struggle. This is our lot. And after a while, when we live with ourselves in this way, it becomes easier and easier to think that not much can really ever change about our game. We define ourselves as fundamentally medium or poor players. We might take a little bit of comfort that there are even worse moral duffers out there than we are, right? There are some people who don't even make a 
any effort to follow after the higher standard that God sets for us. But we begin to believe after time that it's never going to be possible for us to go much further than we have. And we see pros like Eugene Groza or Mama Maggie or some other heroic Christian figure. And we reckon that we will never really be like that. In fact, the larger our vision of the holy and glorious God becomes, the greater and clearer our vision of the character of Jesus is or a godly person is, the, the, the more discouraged we become about really ever being like that. And so we settle in our minds. Uh, we think of God as up there like some glorious being above the angelic host. And we think of ourselves as down here, at least I do, as just a common wor- worm burner. And I'm glad there's grace for sinners, I think to myself, because that's what I am at the core. That's what I probably always will be. And that is the internal narrative that I suspect many of us have in our minds when we think of ourselves in relationship to God. We think of ourselves as inveterate shankers in golf terminology. We may hit some good shots now and then, but we're going to keep going back to the old habits. And there's probably not a ton that we can do about that. We are inveterate sinners. We tend to play to this image we have of ourselves as maybe getting slightly better, but not much better than we already are. And we think of Jesus as resurrected up there someplace, thankfully looking down upon us with kindness, thankful for his forgiving grace. We take some comfort in the fact that one day he's going to come back down here again, the Bible says, and he's going to finally fix me. I'm going to finally be able to play the game then. But in the meantime, I settle into this idea that I might as well get used to moving along the moral scale like an inchworm or like a lousy golfer, maybe seeing a little improvement now and then, but essentially stuck in this ground-level condition. A lot of Christians that I talk to seem to believe that this is what the Bible tells us to expect. Many people I've had conversations with seem to think that what the Bible teaches is that we are fundamentally sinners, just grateful for a little bit of grace and the ultimate grace that's coming when Jesus returns. But this is not actually what the Bible teaches at all. This is not even close, actually, to what the Bible truly teaches about us at all. Here is what the New Testament actually teaches. If you have received the grace of God extended to you at the cross of Jesus Christ, if you have said to yourself, I know that I am never going to be able to get into the heavenly club on the merits of my own game. If you have 
opened yourself up to God and recognized that only by his righteousness, only by the grace he extends to you, is there any prayer of you getting into communion with him again or restoring the quality of your community with other people again. If you have recognized your desperate need of God in this way, from that particular moment on, things change for you. They decisively change from you. You left the worm club the moment you made that prayer to God. You left the sinful worm club at that moment and you entered into the beautiful saint state. The moment you opened yourself up to God and said, forgive me, cleanse me of my sin, be my Lord, you changed at a fundamental level that it's crucially important you understand. To switch to the other metaphor we've been using here, the moment you got into Christ's golf cart, the moment you decided to stop trying to walk the course on your own and you got into his cart, you became in the eyes of God himself, whose whose opinion, by the way, is the only one that counts. You became in the eyes of God, not a duffing sinner, but a superb, saintly winner. Welcome forever to play along with him. That change happened in you. And I know that sounds implausible. For reasons I'll come back to in a minute. It's certainly not the way the world works. That just, bam, we get declared something different and we become something different. No, the world works that we have to keep earning and earning and earning and proving and paying dues and All of this effort will ultimately keep us in the club or get us in the club. But this is not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And understand that up to this point in the scripture passage, he has been talking about the cross of Christ. The significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he says. So from now on. From the point of the cross, now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. If you are in Christ, the old, rumpled, broken, wormy, not saintly being, soul is gone. And the new life has come. As difficult as this truth may be to believe, it hangs on two absolutely dependable attributes of the character of God. The attributes of God's imminence and of his omnipotence. Imminence means his immense presence with you. Not out there someplace. His immense presence has now come into you, into your heart, into your life. 
And his omnipotence means his all-encompassing power is now also at work in you. At the moment that anyone receives Christ into their heart, God comes into that person's life with his immense presence and with all power. And if you have placed your trust in Christ, if you have put yourself into Christ, then God is present and powerful in you, even if you don't feel it. Even if you can't feel it. This idea that Christ's followers are, regardless of appearance, radically new. People with a new presence, a new power at work within them is a gigantic theme of the New Testament. I mean, it is everywhere through the New Testament, this idea. Paul writes elsewhere, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we might no longer be slaves to sin, we're told there. And he's not saying this. We hear this. We read this. We read the word should. We major on the should part. We think because of what Jesus done, we should be better than we are. But he's actually saying, if you go back to the original language, that when, we, that when, that when he was crucified, we stopped being slaves to sin. Not just the guilt of sin was washed away in Christ's death and resurrection, but the power of sin was destroyed upon the cross. Then he says a little elsewhere, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you, promising glory. You were dead in your sins, he says in Colossians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. If there's any personality who has ever been realistic about the struggle with sin, if there's any personality in history who's ever been candid, transparent, authentic, even prone to legalistic guilt over sin, it is this former Pharisee, Paul, and yet listen to the triumphant confidence that he speaks in these words. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Are you getting this? What Paul is saying to all believers, is that when Christ died upon the cross, our sin, its guilt, its power, died with him. Sin's effect, its capacity to wreak its ultimate damage, died on the cross with Jesus. And when Christ was resurrected to new life, we were raised to. We were filled with his life, his immense presence, his all-encompassing power entered into our lives too. In his wonderful book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith likens this death and resurrection process to the transformation 
that happens inside of a butterfly chrysalis. Do you remember the fourth grade experiment? Or is it third grade for you? School standard slide sometimes. Terrariums. We had a terrarium. There was a chrysalis. We watched the worm spin the chrysalis, remember? And then we watched what happened. What emerges from the chrysalis, as you know, is not simply a slightly improved worm. Right? It's not simply a a more attractive worm. What emerges from that chrysalis, which, by the way, the word comes from, takes us from the root word Christ, what emerges from that cocoon is an altogether new kind of creature. Not just a worm with wings, right? A new kind of creature. So to keep saying to yourself, I am just a sinner. Thank goodness that there's some grace for me. To keep saying, to think of yourself in these terms, sounds humble and it sounds realistic. And in one sense, it's true, as we'll talk about in a minute. But it does not begin to do justice to what our God has done for us and in us through Jesus Christ. You are not just a sinner if you're a follower of him. You are not just a sinner. You're not even... A worm slowly growing wings. By the grace of God and at a level that you will not fully be able to perceive and enjoy until you burst forth from the grave one day into the dazzling skies of heaven, you are already a new creation. Something has happened deep down in the depths of your soul that has made you new. So if this is true, as the Bible clearly and repeatedly says it is, why then do we still so often feel mainly like sinners? Why do we keep doing things that aren't in keeping with these new creations in whom the presence and the power of God dwells? Why is our game so bad, is what I'm trying to ask you. The Bible says that it is because our eternal spirits, which God has changed, are still bound to these unredeemed bodies, to what the scriptures call the flesh. The apostle Paul writes in one of his letters, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit and what the spirit of God desires is opposed to the flesh. James Bryan Smith reminds us that our bodies are mortal. Not just the bones, not just the muscles, not just the glands and the senses, but the mind and the emotions as well. That vast, unbelievably intricate, electronic, chemical complex, which is culturally, genetically, diabolically at times, geographically, and pathologically influenced mortality, we still live inside. Our eternal souls, our redeemed being, still lives with the flesh. And what this means is that we are journeying along within structures that still carry the remnant of the sin that used to define us totally. We still have these old tapes that run through our heads. We still have these old habits and orientations that control our will. These old urges that rise up in our loins and our limbs. We still inhabit these old societies 
that live in opposition to the kingdom of God. And so we tend to think, this is who I am. This is who we are. Sinners. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin thought, and he wrote a lot about this. He wrote, as long as we remain cooped up in this prison of our body, traces of sin will dwell in us. But if we faithfully hold fast to the promise given us by God, those traces shall not dominate or rule us. If we faithfully hold fast to the promise given us by God, they shall not dominate us or rule us. Beloved, I'm almost done, so hang in here because this is the most important part. Our old enemy, God's old enemy, does not want you to know this. He does not want you to know this about yourself. He does not want you to remember that you are more than your flesh. He hopes that you will believe that God's work in you when you were saved didn't have much implication for this life. He wants you to believe that God's work in you was mainly cosmetic, momentarily emotional, limited in its influence. He wants you to get discouraged in your spiritual battle and come to think of yourself as a perpetually high handicapped sinner whose game is not going to get better in this life. That's what he wants you to think. He wants you to get so caught up in this understanding of yourself that, that you're just a sinner, that all you'll ever be is a sinner, that you might actually give up the game of trying to be more than this, of yearning and praying to be more than this. He loves it when you obsess over how badly you did on that last shot. He just loves it when you spend your week guilty and upset over that last way you, you played the game. He is thrilled when you get kicking the dirt or distracted by the snack cart girl. He, he loves this. He wants you worrying over what other people are snickering behind your back about you as you line up for the next shot. Oh, he's thrilled when you get concerned about what other people are saying about you or whether or not you will get membership in that heavenly club. He thrills at our obsessiveness and our anxiety and our lusts and our distractions. But here is the truth that God begs you to take in. I beg you this day to take in. If you are in Christ, you already are a new creation. At the deepest, most important part of your being, you are a new being, a new creature in a profound and irrevocably vital way. In Christ, God has changed life's game for you. From now on, you are riding in the master's cart, if you understand what I mean. You are no longer engaged in individual stroke play If you're a golfer, you know what I'm talking about. 
you're actually now playing best ball. Okay? And your partner's game is flawless. And you get to play his ball on every shot. That's what the gospel is all about. God is not standing there weighing, should I let him or her into my club? He's not doing this at all. He's not looking at you trying to evaluate, you know, how you play the game and whether it's, you know, sufficient to play in my club. He is not evaluating you on the basis of your merits in any way. He has already fully accepted you and admitted you on the basis of Christ's performance. On the basis of your partner's play. When God looks at you, he does not see a sinner. He sees a saint. He does not see a slave to sin. He sees a daughter or son of the heavenly king. He does not see a worm destined to be squashed underfoot, but rather a glorious being whose destiny is the sky. That's you. That is your identity, beloved. And your old enemy, Satan, doesn't want you to know this. He wants you to forget it. His worst fear is a lot worse than a shoulder injury. I promise you, his worst fear is that you will actually come to recognize the immense presence and the all-encompassing power of the Lord who is closer to you right this second than your own heartbeat. He's with you. He's in you. He's at work for you. Satan loathes the thought that discovering who God is and how near he is to you, you might actually start to relax that white-knuckled grip that you have on some club you're trying to use to prove your worth, and you might actually turn that club over to him so that he can use it, show you how to use it in a much better way. Satan is worrying that you might become so enraptured with watching the way that God plays. This is why he's distracting you. This is why he's thrilled when you spend your life just clicking through the channels or distracted. He's afraid you might spend time away and actually sense God's presence with you and start watching the way he handles himself so that you might actually unconsciously start moving the way. You'll just start moving the way he does. You'll start playing the way he does simply by being his companion day after day. Oh, Satan is desperately afraid that will happen to you. What makes your soul's enemy quake in his snake shoes is the thought that one day you and I might actually wake up, defy our flesh, break forth from our chrysalis because we finally realized who and whose we really are. So pray for me, and I will pray for you, that today may be the day when we wake up to the wonder even more deeply. 
Amen.